All right, so let me tell you what you all know already. This housing market is going crazy. Like, I have talked to so many people in our church right now that's like, do you know, somebody just before the service, do you know anybody that has a house for rent or any apartments? Because it's just going crazy. It's wild uh, what's happening with our housing market. And the truth is, something is always worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Doesn't matter what you think it's worth. Doesn't matter how much money you have to pay for it. It matters what somebody is willing to pay for it. Which reminds me how valuable you are in this room that Jesus Christ would give his life. That God Almighty would send his own son and die on a cross for you. That makes you infinitely valuable. That's how much you are worth. But, but I wonder uh, when I was processing this message, and, and, and this is going to be heavy this morning. I'm just warning you in advance. But I, I wonder how much is Jesus worth to you? Because I can make an argument for how much you're worth to him because he died for you. But how much are you worth, or how much is he worth to you? How much are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? I don't mean financially, that would sound weird, but seriously, let's consider this for just a second. Your salvation is free, but make no mistake, following Jesus will cost you. Your salvation is paid for by him, but if you're going to follow him, if you're actually going to be a disciple of Christ, it's going to cost you. So what is the value, the worth, the cost of following Jesus? I know Jesus paid it all, but if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to do some work in there too. It's going to cost you in life. What if, or I should say, what will you do if following Jesus costs you more than you're willing to pay? Think about that for a second. So we live in an America where it doesn't talk about this much, but sometimes it's going to cost you something. We're going to really dive deep into this. And sometimes it might cost you more than you're willing to pay. And you're only going to grow to your level of pain tolerance of what God is calling you to do next. It might be give extra. It might be witness extra. It might be do something radical. It might be uh, you know talk to this person. I don't know what it is, but what, if, what will you do if following Jesus costs you more than you're willing to pay? If you really want to know somebody, study their heroes. Heroes are powerful because they, they tell us who we want to be. So, so when you think about who your heroes are, they're very powerful to your identity. In the book of Hebrews that we've been studying all month, or really I think for six weeks, this is part six of it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith is, is really beautiful uh, because the writer of Hebrews starts talking about all of these different people that are the heroes of faith. And he goes through people like, like he starts out with Abel all the way back there and then Enoch and Noah, what great faith he had, and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And he tells the story of Jericho real briefly and overshows that. He, he talks about Rahab, the prostitute, and her great faith. And in the middle of that story, in the middle of sharing all of these heroes of the faith and all of these people that are looking down on us with their faith and teaching us what faith is. Hebrews 11 verse 32, he says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. If you recognize that verse, it's because we just talked about it on Father's Day. It's powerful, right? This is manly talk right here. Conquered kingdoms, administered justice, beautiful, powerful, strong verses. 
But then it says, after celebrating all of these, after talking about everybody who had done amazing exploits in their faith, who had been rescued by God, Isaac rescued from his father's own hand, people who had done amazing things, and then it says, there were others. (laughs) That's a key word right there. There were others. Somebody say others. Y'all really quiet. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, in other words, in sheep clothing, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground, not palaces. Caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. These were all, going back to Enoch and Abraham and Moses, these were all commended to their faith, whether they escaped the fire or died in the fire. Whether they escaped the persecution or died amidst the persecution, these were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, what he's saying right there is these people did what they did without even receiving the promise of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They suffered persecution and made it through persecution. How much greater should you and I be able to handle it? If you're taking notes, number one would be this. Faith is not always flashy. (laughs) Faith is not always flashy. I summoned my inner pastor Mike in this just to give an F so it sounded cooler. There's a lot of words you could probably use right there. But but I do got to point this out, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir a little bit that's in the room and others who are watching online. But faith is not always flashy. See, we have to be careful because we have an American version of faith that looks very different than the version of faith we just read in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is all about faith and these people of great faith. We get our definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1. Faith is not, though, always flashy. So you had the flashy stories of Moses and Abraham and these great prophets and all of these guys, but then you have the other stories where it doesn't work out so well. See, we got to be careful because in America, faith can become very me-central. Me-centric. Faith and Christianity in America begins to blend into the environment and culture of America, of consumerism, and it becomes all about me and what I want and what I get out of it. What am I getting out of for this Christian thing? And it's this consumer-based religion that if we're not careful, we follow Jesus because what he's doing for me. Which works until he doesn't do for you what you thought he was supposed to do for you. We get a narcissistic version of Christianity all about me. We, we, we sing a song. I don't know. I told the worship team before about this, and a few people know. But before we sing songs in our church, I always approve them because our songs create our theology. And sometimes we sing songs that sound nice, but they have bad theology. And we just don't do that at Arise. And so there's a song that's very popular right now. I'm not hating on the song. I just want to point it out. And the song has a chorus that says, you're never going to let me down, over and over. You're never going to let, you're never going to let me down. Now, if you love that song, I'm not hating on you. I just want to say, God will let you down. Hebrews 11, some of the people escaped the fire, others didn't. 
Some people are miraculously healed. Others aren't. And if you think God has a priority of making sure you are never let down in whatever you think his will is, you're going to be sadly mistaken. In fact, I'll just be perfectly boldly honest with you. The first time I ever heard that song, I was at a conference. and Maybe not the first time, but the first time I heard it sung live. I was at a conference, and they're singing the song. And I was walking through a particular difficult season in that moment. And it was annoying to me that we were singing the song. Because I'm going, God will let me down. God is letting me down right now. From what I expected, from what I wanted, from what my plan was for my life, God is letting me down in this moment. The point is, I will follow you even if you do let me down. Because my following you is not based on whether you're going to let me down or not. See, if you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you, and sometimes it costs you a lot. Think about American Christians for a second. We're, we're kind of fickle and funny. We, we come to and leave churches and even come to and leave God over things that, that seem rational in the moment, but they're so stupid. The music is too loud or too quiet. The temperature is too hot or too cold. Services are too long or they're too short. Service times change and so we leave the church. We live too far away or we're too close. She, she talked about me. She said something that hurt my feelings and so we walk away from God. Think about how silly and childish we can be sometimes. Worship styles. I don't like the style of worship and what it's becoming. When did worship become about us? I thought worship was about him. And so we leave churches and get, leave God for the dumbest reasons sometimes. And church hurt is a real thing. But sometimes we are also very sissified and me-centric in the American church. <laughs> People, pastors leave church because they get paid too little. I gotta tell you, when I, when I went in full-time ministry, I got paid $16,000 a year. I did the math this morning. just to, I'm like, And that wasn't that long ago. Somebody's like, that was 1930s. It wasn't that long ago. And what begins to happen is that our American blessing of prosperity starts to become our greatest curse. We become entitled because we have so many options and so much greatness, more theology, more understanding, more of all these things. We have all of this, and so it becomes our curse. We become entitled, and we think, you owe me something. Now, I've, I've had the privilege of traveling the world preaching the gospel, and oftentimes I do this in places uh, where I feel very, very unqualified. I have a degree and degrees that are much higher than the people I'm speaking to, but they have a lifestyle and a relationship with Jesus and a, a willingness to be persecuted that I don't even comprehend. And so I end up speaking because I have a degree while I'm thinking I should be, these people be speaking to me. They should be investing in me because they've actually lived the stuff I have degrees about. <laughs> One of the churches where we see this happen a lot is in Nepal. Many of you know we own and operate an orphanage in Nepal called Elsa's House of Hope. And so we consistently go there to check up on the orphanage, check up on our girls, and make sure everything's going well. One of the last trips as we were going, in fact, our last trip was in 2018 because 2020, when we were planning to go, COVID happened. And then we had planned to go again this year, and COVID is still a serious issue there, so we can't go again this year. Hopefully next year we'll be back. But as we're, we're flying there, I remember talking to Pastor Ken, who was with me, and I said, one of the things you're going to experience when you get there is that there's not a lot of cultural Christians and there's probably no cultural Christians. Why? Because being a Christian in Nepal is going to cost you something. <laughs> it's not cool to be a Christian. <laughs> you don't be a Christian because God gives you something or because your life gets better or finances get better. You become a Christian and everything gets worse. 
You get kicked out of your agrarian culture in your village oftentimes. There's a little village called Joomla that we helped plant a church in that's very close to the heart of our connections that we have there because he grew up there, Pastor Raju. Yeah, very, in fact, go to that next picture. Pastor Raju is all the way on the left on this picture. He oversees our different languages. Some of them I've read all the way through. Some of them I haven't. But I have all these Bibles, and they're all nice and clean, and I have Bible covers for all of them, and they all look really good for the most part. And here you have somebody that the entire church has one Bible that they share and they all use together. The revivals that are happening there, while they have nothing else, they have a hunger for God that is incredible. I will show that video if we get back to it. There are no celebrity pastors in Nepal. It's not cool to be a pastor. You have no money. You, 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 don't, you don't make any money. You don't, you don't have any clout in the community because people don't look up to you. In fact, you're hated by the Hindus. But yet they have Jesus, and that's enough. we got to be so careful and cautious of the culture that we live in that will suck the life out of us of the church because we become me-centric. The church popular is the church polluted. And when the church is polluted, it becomes a puny church. But when the church is persecuted, it becomes the church pure. And when the church is pure, it is powerful. We think we're suffering if we sit on seats in our sanctuary that aren't padded. We think we're suffering if the AC were to go out. Now, this is Florida, but come on. We think we're suffering over things that are so silly sometimes. But this persecution has always been the way it was. It's always been part of the church. You can go all the way back to the early years and somebody like Polycarp, who in the 4th century under Marcus Aurelius was persecuted. He was a student of the Apostle John, an overseer of the Smyrna church. And when he's being taken to his death, they ask him over and over to renounce Christ. And he finally says famously, reproach Christ or they say to him, reproach Christ and I will release you. He's an old man by this point and he replied, 86 years have I served him and he has never wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Talk about a person like Sanctus who was a deacon in Vienna who was martyred by putting red hot plates on his body until it burned through him and killed him. Blandina who was a woman who they thought was not able to handle the persecution that was coming because she was female, but she was one of the toughest of all of them. They tied her to a stake naked in the amphitheater and sick, suck uh, hungry lions upon her. When that didn't kill her, they put her in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a net and tied her net to a bull's horns and let it run around the arena, beating her to death. When that didn't kill her, they put her on a red-hot metal chair that was burning her to death and scorching her to death inside of the amphitheater. She still would not relent, relent, recant her faith, and so they finally killed her with a sword. This is the story of the church. And I think in America we need to hear these stories because we make Christianity all about me. That's not our history. That's not our hall of faith. John Whitecliffe, who translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, how dare he do that? Translated into the common language and was persecuted and eventually burned. Or, I'm sorry, he was persecuted and when he died, they actually exhumed his body out of the ground and burned him at the stake again because they were so upset with him. A person like John Huss, an early reformer even before Martin Luther, who was burned at the stake for speaking against the Catholic doctrines that were part of the later Reformation. A person like William Tyndale, who was choked to death while tied to a stake for translating the Bible, then his body was burned after it was over. 
Or you could talk about missionaries who gave everything, like Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, and, and there's uh, four of them all together. I don't remember the other one's names, but they go down to Latin America and to South America and, and, and take on the, the Adani people and take the gospel to them, only to be killed as soon as they get there. Estimates are between 10,000 and 100,000 Christians are martyred each year for their faith. How does that fit into the American system of Christianity? How does that fit into your theology of faith? But I thought God's always going to rescue me out of everything. No, not always. Then there were others. Sometimes God does miraculously save and rescue. Other times he doesn't. Two-thirds of the Christians living in the, in the world live in dangerous places for their faith, where they suffer persecution of different types, some not being allowed to have jobs or other things. Think about that. Think about that. Let, let me just go back because I want you to see this video because I want you to, to go back to it. Go to that, go to that uh, picture of Nepal first. This, this picture, go to the next one after that. This is the Bible that I was just talking about. That's me. That's the church behind me. I'm like tall compared to everybody there because they're malnourished. That's me with hair, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, anyway. Go to the next slide after that. I want you to see this. This is one of the altar calls the first year that I went. They have nothing. They have no money. They have no finances. They're like 1% of the population. They're persecuted by the Hindus that are all around them. They can't get jobs. They'll lose everything. But they're so hungry for God. And miracles become commonplace in their midst. Because they're so desperate for God. Can you see it on their faces? There is no COVID social distancing. Now, of course, that was pre-COVID. But they're so hungry for God. Let this picture bring conviction. That we, if not careful, make Christianity about ourselves. Instead of what I do for God, it becomes about what God does for me. Salvation works like that. But if you're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost you. Let me show you what an altar call looks like in Nepal. This is from... That was just a clip. That wasn't even one of the strongest moves of God we were in there, but that was one of the clips. I'm on the stage. I'm just videoing this altar call. Let that sink in. They have nothing, but they have Jesus, and that's enough. So let me ask you again, how much are you willing to pay for following Jesus? How much persecution will you handle? Because then there were some. Yeah, we love to share the stories of all the miracles God has done. But then there were some who were sawed in two, who were burned at the stake for following Jesus. My second point, if you're taking notes, following Jesus will cost you. If you haven't caught on to that yet. I'm going to share more Bible than I usually do this morning. 
because I think it's necessary. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Get this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. He was getting to his megachurch. He was getting to the place that everybody liked him. He was popular. Things were going really well. Everybody is following Jesus. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus. And he turned to them and said, thank you for following me. I just love you all so very much. No, that's what we say in America. So when the large crowds come, then he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate His father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be by disciple. Somebody needs to take Jesus to seminary and teach him how to grow a church. Because this doesn't work so well once you get the crowd to do all you can to get rid of the crowd. (laughs) And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is where it gets key. The cost, the counting the cost. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Would you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. So you've got to count the cost. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the others, other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In this way, those of you who do not give up some things. This is so not American. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Following Jesus will cost you. And what is he saying? He's saying, listen, you need to count the cost, and it can be expensive. Ask these early reformers who gave their lives for it. See, the problem with a seeker-friendly church sometimes is that a seeker-friendly church becomes consumeristic. And when we become consumeristic, we want the cheapest version. That's what consumers want. We want the best quality with the least cost. That's what we want, right? That's consumers. That's what we want. So then we start looking for a church or a gospel that gives you the most with the least amount you have to put into it. Jesus sees the large crowds coming, and he says, listen, guys, if you're going to follow me, we got to get real. This is not about attracting a large crowd. This is about going deep in what you believe. See, when you really get serious with Jesus, when you go all the way with the Lord, you're going to refuse to compromise. You're going to get rid of idols in your life. You're going to cut off your own hand if it offends you or pluck out your own eye if it offends you. Maybe not literally, but you know what I mean. You're going to pay the price. He says says you're going to hate your father and mother. Not literally that you would hate them, but you may not be able to be around them sometimes. See, lukewarm Christians are not going to like you. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be cast out. You may be stoned, so to speak. One of the best ways to find persecution is to go all in with Jesus, to really commit yourself fully to him. And I promise you, you will find persecution somewhere. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it starts coming from a lukewarm church that can't stand the sight of somebody on fire for the Lord. Your convictions convict them. (laughs) Just remember 
When Stephen was stoned, they believed they were doing what they were doing for God. You'll be called a religious fanatic in a lukewarm, dead church, and Christians will not be able to stand you. You're going to be rejected. The world will hate you. But if you're hated by the world for God's cause, there's a good chance you are loved by God. And I would rather be loved by God than loved by the world. You will be rejected, but you may be accepted by God. See, following Jesus will cost you. It'll cost you. What do you do with friends that were really close friends that all of a sudden following Jesus means I cannot stay friends with them any longer? They're pulling me backwards, not forward. What do you do with TV shows that you love, that you enjoy, that God begins directing in your life and saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're really going to follow me, you're going to cut that off. What, what do you do when you say, my money is my money? And God says, if you're really going to follow me, this is not about tithing. You're going to give even more because you've got to break the spirit off of you. What are you going to do when following Jesus really costs you something? Because if you follow him long enough, it will begin to cost you. Are you willing to lose friends or be persecuted for the sake of righteousness? We are living in an America that is rapidly changing and the persecution is coming and already here where you will be made fun of, laughed at, excommunicated. You might even lose your job for what you believe. Will you keep following Jesus or will you acquiesce to the society? A.W. Tozer said there is only one of two things we can do with the cross. We either flee from it or die upon it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when, you, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Come and die. It's happened over and over and over. I knew of a man, a friend of a friend. His name was uh, like Balur Sator. They called him Paul. He was Nigerian. And in November 2008, there was political unrest across the nation. And some Muslims started rioting. And that led to persecution against churches and pastors. And they started burning down churches. And they went to this man, Paul's, uh, one of the areas that he had planted a church. He had planted almost 100 churches in a Bible college at this point. And they started going to his village, and they're coming in, causing a riot, and they're going to burn down the church. Literally had the head of a pastor on a stick as they came through. And Paul and a couple of the other, other Christians around him said, we have to do something. we got to protect our church. we got to protect, uh, you know, we, we got to do something. And they said, if you go out there, they're going to kill you. And his last words to them were, if they kill me, I'm ready to die. He went out and tried to plead with them. They ended up cutting off both of his arms and legs, plucked out his eyes, and then burnt his body in the middle of the town. He left a wife and nine children behind. What do you do if Christianity costs you something? Will you still follow? And what level of cost are you willing to pay? And I would say this, if Christianity doesn't cost you something, you're probably not actually following Jesus. Hmm. Just look at the, 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 the apostles. <laughs> like you would think God's provision was on them, so they should be protected. But James, the brother of John in AD 44, was beheaded and on his way to be beheaded, he was, the, the, the guard who was taking him was so convicted that he fell to his knees and admitted that he was also a Christian, kind of an undercover Christian, and they were both beheaded. Matthew was pinned to the ground and beheaded with a, a halberd. James, the brother of Jesus and the writer of the epistle, was thrown to the from the temple tower, and when that didn't kill him, they smashed his head with a club. 
Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces in Alexandria because he spoke against idol worship. You may be drugged to pieces by your neighbors. You may be drugged to pieces by your community, your, your people at work, because you speak against something that's sin and obviously wrong. Peter was crucified upside down because he requested it traditionally, it's believed. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. Thomas was tortured, stabbed with spears, and thrown into the flames of an oven. Paul was beheaded on the executioner's block. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Uh, What am I saying? I'm just saying. And then there were others. And you need to know this. Because what if it does get hard? How much are you willing to pay? You need to decide that before it comes. It's only when you lay your life down, though, that you start to find real life. This is a kingdom principle. Some people are like, well, Christianity doesn't seem to work because they're expecting it to bless them. But it's not until you fully lay your life down that you even know if it works or not. (laughs) But there were others. But there were others. My third and final point. Fellowship is worth it. Fellowship is worth it. I know fellowship is a churchy word, but I'm talking about fellowship with the Lord is worth it. They they, they had this question once in the Bible when they asked Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 26. They said this, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Okay, sorry, I'm going to go back to the other verse in a second. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Do you actually believe that verse? Do you really believe? Because I know we live in a Christian America where God just wants to bless you and help you and do everything for you. But do you really believe that if I sow my life into God, if I give it all to him, I'll actually find real life? That's why you can't know until you do it, and you can't do it until you surrender all. (laughs) What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self, their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. (sighs) Christianity means picking up your cross and denying yourself. Denying yourself. Denying yourself. That's so unconsumeristic. That's so un-American. You're supposed to give yourself everything. You're supposed to have everything. Anything that you can afford, anything that you can get, you're supposed to have it all. But it says if you're going to follow me, you're actually going to deny yourself. Is anybody uncomfortable yet in the service? (laughs) We deny ourselves and follow him. means picking up your cross. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. In fact, there was one time that Peter asked him about it. Mark chapter 10. This is the verse I thought I was going to a second ago in my head. Then Peter spoke up and he said this, we have left everything to follow you. You remember Peter? He dropped the nets and started following. He said, I've lost everything. Now in context, come on, Peter, you didn't have much to start with. Now we laugh at that. We could say the same things to ourselves. You didn't really have near as much as you'd like to act like you had. We left everything to follow you. 
Listen to what Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, he replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, along with persecutions, along with persecutions, and it's the age to come eternal life. Eternal life. Ah. <laughs> There was a time in my life where I thought I had given up everything to follow Jesus. Many of you have the same experience. There was a time in my life where God comes down, overshadows me. I surrendered all. I threw away everything that I had. I gave away money. I gave away everything. I did everything I can to surrender everything to Jesus. All kinds of negative friends that I had in my life, I got rid of all of them. A lot of them couldn't stand me for a long time because I literally just, just like stopped answering calls and got rid of all of my friends that were trying to pull me down. And I can tell you all these layers later, along with a lot of other people in this room, that it is so worth it. I thought I had life. What I found is I did not have life. I was discovering what life really was. When you lay it down for God, it is so worth it. It is so worth it. So worth it. Justin Martyr was an early church father who echoed the same kind of faith. When they took him to the very place that they said, we're going to kill you here. They took his congregation. They said, we're going to kill you right here. Justin famously said, remember, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. Ooh, that's good. So what does following Jesus look like? What does it look like? There was, there was at one point, Jesus' followers come to him. So many others have left. He's saying these very hard things. The crowds are leaving. And Jesus says to his followers, the, the 12 that are there, he says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? You're not planning to leave too. And these words have echoed in my heart for a long time. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, where will we go? Where will we go? You speak the words of life. We know who you are. You're the Messiah. But beyond that, we have given ourselves so fully to you. Where can we go? Our life is built around you, Jesus. Where can we go? I wonder, are you getting to the place? Have you given yourself so fully to the Lord that you're like, where can I go? Persecution comes, that's going to stink, but where can I go? Life gives hard times. Some people might quit, but where can I go? I can't quit. I'm so deeply invested in this. I've given my life to this. I'm so surrendered. Like, Jesus, where can I go? Like, I might not like it, but I can't go anywhere. I've given my whole life to you. It's not even a question. Right after I got saved, I, I went to my best friend's house, David Doan. Um, not, I say right after, but shortly after. I'd given my life to Christ. Now, he had always uh, been saved, and I, had, I, I was really backslidden. Give my life to Christ. I remember talking to him. He was leaving and uh, moving back to South Carolina, where he still is to this day. And I remember talking to him, and, and he was very concerned for me, which is a beautiful thing. And he said, he said Brent, my concern is, like, what are you going to do once I leave? Like, are you going to stay? Like, I love what God's doing in your life, but are you going to stay, like, committed? Like, what are you going to do? And he's concerned about me. And I'll never forget, without even thinking about what was coming out of my mouth, I replied back to him. I said, David, you don't understand. Where else can I go? 
I've lost all the friends. I've lost all the stuff. I moved back in with my mom. You know how embarrassing that is? Because I knew she would help keep me out of trouble. Where can I go? I'm not saying I couldn't backslide. But I am saying it's kind of hard now. (laughs) Where could I go? We have to be part of the fellowship of the unashamed. Like Job, those who say, "Though though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the kind of commitment God is calling us to. I know this is a heavy message. I know this is different than usual. Sometimes we have dessert that's so tasty and yummy. Sometimes we have steak that's healthy, I think, and yummy. Sometimes you have to eat some asparagus that you don't like because you know it's good for you. We've got to be counted among the unashamed. We're walking into a time where we need to recognize that as persecution comes, I am counting the cost. This Christianity is not a me-centric, bless me. God always saves me. God always rescues me out of every trouble. It's a, I'm going to follow Christ wherever that leads, in trouble or out of trouble. There was a Rwandan man in 1980 that was forced by the tribe that he was a part of to renounce Christ. He was told he had to renounce Christ or die. The night before he was to renounce Christ, the story goes that he sat down in his village tent, the place he was staying, his little home, and he wrote these words the night before he was going to be martyred for his faith. You might have heard these before, but I want to read them again because they're so powerful. He said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My my present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detours, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes, (laughs) and when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my banner will be clear. Paul would say something similar. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. You get to a point that you say, I'm going to follow God wherever it leads. I'm not going to back up. I look at what's going on in the United States. I look at anybody who stands for righteousness and there's coming a time where it's going to begin costing you. And you need to make the decision now. I need to make the decision now. How much am I willing to pay? How far will I go with this Jesus thing? Am I really, truly 
surrendered over to him? Have you thoroughly given yourself to Christ? (coughs) So there is nowhere else you can go. Have you really given yourself to Christ in that way? Because if we're not careful, maybe you did at one point, but we've lost it because this cultural Christianity sleeps, slips into the church and it becomes me-centric and what I get out of it. And I know we're a Pentecostal church that believes in miracles and we believe it's always God's will for miracles and we believe that God will show up and God will make a way and we believe that he will part the Red Seas for you. But even if he doesn't, Even if he doesn't, I will follow him. Will you? Even when he doesn't heal me, I'll follow him. Even when he doesn't make sense, I'll follow him. (laughs) When the three Hebrews are about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, they give this great speech to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, God is able. With all this power and authority, I see it in the theater of my mind. God delivered these people and he delivered those people and my God is able. And then they say those words. But even if he doesn't, I still will not bow to you. This is a heavy message, but this is a message for us. How much are you willing to pay? Inflation's going up on your spiritual walk. (laughs) how much are you willing to pay? It might start costing you more to stand for righteousness than it did 20 years ago. It might start costing you more to share your faith than it used to. Inflation is going up on righteousness. And if you're going to stand with God, it's going to start costing you more. 